it's amazing to me how many subjects related to the return of the Lord have been given very brief uh, brushes with no real depth of explanation. And the, there's a, a considerable level of darkness and um, obscurity, opaqueness is probably the best word, uh, surrounding the events uh, described in the book of Revelation 20. So I'm moving through looking at them event by event or reference by reference. So for example, the last time we spoke of the first resurrection, uh, obviously implying a second resurrection. Uh, we spoke about uh, the abyss and Satan being imprisoned under seal in the abyss, which is to say by divine authority. To, to make the point uh, and to impress upon us how thoroughly and irrevocably Satan's imprisonment for a thousand years in the abyss is, he's put under seal which is to say in the ancient world documents that had to do with uh, the imperatives and decrees of a king were often sealed with a signet ring to imply that the seriousness of the king's authority was fully uh, implied and implicated in the action that was subject to seal. And so part of what uh, this idea of Satan being put in the bottomless pit and a seal was placed on it, it clearly implies the imprimatur of Christ himself or of God himself who, uh, under whose authority Satan is confined and it gives the clearest of indications that there is no possibility that his imprisonment would be interrupted by any force uh, during the millennium so that we may safely and properly infer that this imprisonment will last for the duration and no influence that emits from the person of Satan would be permitted to invade the domain uh, over which Christ has complete plenary uh, total rule. Now again, as we look at the various events and references, it is, as I said before, it is to pull apart in, in more exhaustive detail than, than is typical or normal uh, when, when discussions of the book of Revelation are undertaken. It is more to show all of the particulars or most of the, all of the important and referenced particulars and then putting them back together in the context of, of the chronology implied 
in, in the book because many things are happening at the same time. Uh, sometimes the cadence of the occurrences is not distinguishable, uh, does not allow for a distinction between the, and break in between the activities. Things are happening at the same time and or within the reference of a thing occurring, there are surrounding factors and implied consequences associated with that. For example, we're looking at the overall picture of the return of the Lord, the putting the first order of which is to put down the enemy, to destroy the enemy, as it were to create a, 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 an environment for the actual things that the millennium is about. The millennium is not mainly about the imprisonment of Satan. The imprisonment of Satan contributes to the point of the millennium, which is the finishing work of the saving of the souls of those whom God has received as sons. Uh, obviously, when taken within the broad context of Scripture from, from the book of Genesis onward, this concept of Satan's involvement is across the board associated with corruption and perversion, with deceit, deception, lies and, and so on. So if the goal of the millennium is to save the soul and, to, and the, that process involves choice, that, that mankind needs to choose and choose without the, the pressure of deception and even the duress of Satan's uh, presence and the accompanying threats. If that is in fact the goal, then removal of Satan is a necessary um, condition. He has to be excerpted out of the picture so man may be fully charged, mankind may be fully charged with the consequences of their choices. So much so that when the thousand years are ended and Satan is released, he cannot be charged with having deceived the nations for a thousand years. So the choices that mankind makes to follow Satan at the end of that time, after having been exposed on the one hand to the righteousness of God, the righteousness and light of His ways, and in the total absence of the influence of evil, then it can be said unequivocally that choice is fully informed. In other words, what mankind chooses if, and uh, among those persons who do choose to follow Satan in this final rebellion against God, then they, like Satan, are unredeemable. So their destruction then cannot be associated in any way with bias or unrighteousness or influenced choice. They simply are not, they have no remaining value to God 
and their purposes in creation uh, have been fully served, their opportunity to be saved uh, has been fully extended and rejected and so on. So we see these ancillary and related themes as we go through. Now I want to get back eventually to the overarch of the the new Jerusalem and how that fits into the millennium. But uh, before we get there, there's some other things that we need to look at. I mentioned in passing, for example, that when Satan is released from the pit, he goes up to the four corners of the earth uh, in his effort to deceive the nations. And here is what is said, And now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. It just seems to sit there, Gog and Magog, um, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city." So there is, there is this whole reference to the nations of the earth being deceived. So there are things we know about this time of the return of the Lord and the period known as the millennium, the thousand years. And that is nations will re- retain their nations will retain their identities as nations. That likely will mean that they will maintain their geographic identities and their ethnic identities. Now he goes up, Satan goes up to gather them uh, from the four corners of the earth and the number of them is as the sand of the seashore. Now you've often heard uh, in these very trite and banal understandings of words that Gog and Magog somehow refers to Russia. Well that that is entirely unsupported within the context of this passage because he goes up to deceive the nations. So it isn't just, it wouldn't be just a single nation, wouldn't be just one nation. And he goes up across uh, the breadth of the earth. They're drawn from the, uh, the breadth of the earth is an implication from all over the world as it is at that time. Well, clearly, this is more than one nation. So the terms Gog and Magog then are not to be interpreted as natural references but rather in the way that one would interpret a spiritual reference. So it's clear that the word Gog is found in the word Magog. 
It's the last part of the word Magog. And the implication here is that Gog is the leader and Magog are the followers. And that's more in line with what the actual words imply and mean. So Gog is a type. It's in, in, the, in the period before the return of the Lord, the Antichrist had been established um, by Satan who had him function as a surrogate in the, the kingdom defined as the one with uh, a kingdom with seven heads and ten horns. And a little horn was speaking, a little horn was the mouthpiece. So here you have the forerunner of Gog, the Antichrist. But now when Satan is released from the abyss, he is Gog. He is the leader of the rebellion. He's not doing it anymore by surrogacy and by representation because he's stripped down to being all, the, the, all that he is in the bare essentials of his being. He is the evil one. The point is that Satan is fully charged with all of his offenses against God and as, especially as those offenses against God were perpetrated in context of uh, the offenses against the children of God uh, and the interest of God and of Christ in the earth for all the time that he's been both in the heavens orchestrating events from behind the scenes and disrupting the interest, disrupting and frustrating the intents of God among mankind uh, for all the history of man. When I say frustrating, it doesn't mean that somehow Satan is greater than God and he has the capacity to thwart God although he does influence significantly and severely the purposes of God. What then is his opportunity to do that if he's not actually the equal of God in the opposite sense? It's simple. God's great weakness has always been his association with mankind. It's the ability of Satan to deceive mankind that allows him to thwart the purposes of God for mankind for the time and season that God permits it. That is why there is a distinction between what God permits, the permissible will of God and the immutable will of God. The immutable will of God is that there are things that God will not allow for example, he would say, um, pray that your flight, meaning your departure from Jerusalem, Matthew 24, pray that, pray that your flight be not in the winter or on the Sabbath, because you could only travel a Sabbath day's journey under the law, and a winter would make traveling very arduous. So they had discretion as to what they could pray for. 
but they were not to, they were not instructed to pray that Jerusalem would not fall because they are appointed times by which things that God has planned will occur. And if you're praying against something that constitutes the, the immediacy and immutable will of God occurring, then God will not answer your prayers because it interferes with the will of God and it is not consistent with what He would choose to grant by way of a request. So when we pray, for example, it's imperative that we understand what the parameters are that are permissible to us. I don't want to go in any further into that because this is not a subject of prayer. This is rather speaking about the question of whether or not and in what ways may Satan frustrate the purposes of God. In simple terms, his only opportunity for doing so is because God has given man permission uh, to, to make choices. And within those choices, Satan may operate to frustrate what God would otherwise have allowed for man to have. But then there's an appointed time, you see, meaning the time of Satan's destruction will have come. And this is the reference here in these passages or in these verses from Revelation 20 uh, at verse 7. So no longer is Satan allowed to function through surrogacy. He himself now bears the full burden, full weight of his actions and accordingly bears the full judgment, condemnation and punishment for his actions. And of course, the judgment, condemnation and punishment for his actions, uh, those, those matters are not limited to the rebellion that he stirs against God and against the holy city at the end of the millennium. It's about all that he has done beginning with his rebellion against God in heaven and continuing as we talked about uh, in, the, in the, the segment on the biggest loser, how he loses and loses and loses again but chooses, in fact it's beyond the capacity to change. God bound him over for destruction but waited until the full matter had been completely unveiled and where now Gog has no defense because Gog has waged his last battle and he's to be punished. And, and that punishment will come alongside Magog, the nations that he uh, deceived and who despite the fact that for a thousand years Satan was absent from the picture, yet these nations and the individuals within these nations maintained a stubborn, intractable resistance to the righteousness of God, although 
they were obligated to live under that rule of righteousness for a thousand years. They remained unimpressed by the righteousness of God and chose instead at the end of it to follow Satan in one last and final act of rebellion. This is to say that given the extremes of God's mercy and compassion, kindness and generosity, if you live under the rule of righteousness for a thousand years and previous to that you saw the corruption that brought an end to the world as it was and the destruction of so many people, countless numbers of people destroyed by rebellion against God. You were subject now to a thousand years of the divine alternative, the glory of God's righteousness, the uprightness of His ways, the reliability of His government, the increase as it were of His government and of peace, the best of all times, and still cling to and have affection for the darkness, then the only conclusion is that one is, in, is, is irredeemably evil because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. If their deeds are evil, their hearts are evil and their hearts are so entrenched in the preference for evil that there is no saving them. At that point, destruction is mandated. Now before we get uh, to that portion of the book of Revelation, and again I'm simply setting up what, what the book of Revelation talks about as the prevailing conditions that must be dealt with both at the beginning of the time of the return of the Lord and at the, as, the, as the end of the millennium comes and Satan himself is being judged. You will note here that the city, the city is already on the earth. It says, they went up on the breath of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city. So the notion that the city only comes at the end of the millennium uh, would certainly be challenged by this reference. Um, the, the camp of the saints uh, is of course the dwelling place, where, where the saints live and the beloved city would certainly be the residence of the Lord who is now being opposed uh, by, by uh, Satan. And, and uh, it says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So um, one of the things we know about the city and I, I don't want to get into it just now, 
I want to get into it a little bit further down the road, is that the city in physical description, and I, I don't mean to suggest that the city is altogether a physical entity, uh, but it's described as um, 12,000 uh, furlongs, uh, which works out to about 1,380 miles, long, wide, and high. In, in, in an airplane, we typically fly at about eight miles up if we are flying about in a normal altitude of about 35 to 40,000 feet, about eight miles up. This is 1,380 miles. So it clearly be said to be in the heavens, in the heavens. Um, when the Tower of Babel was built, it was, uh, the plan was to build a tower to the heavens. So when fire comes down out of heaven, um, it's not an indication that the city is not descending on the earth. And that's all I want to say about it at this juncture. I want to open it up later. Now, the interesting thing is about how fire comes down out of heaven. There's another reference to this in the scriptures. It's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where fire and brimstone, sulfur, uh, came down and devoured uh, or destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this ties in with the concept of the lake of fire because that city or those cities, there were five cities in the plains of Zoar uh, or in the plains of uh, Jordan, the smallest of which was Zoar, uh, the other, others of the five were Sodom and Gomorrah which is uh, where Lot lived. Um, and you'll remember the scriptures speak of fire coming down from heaven and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, guess what city is in the general region of the Dead Sea? It's the city of Sodom. In fact, there's a modern town uh, in that area that uh, is a mining town because of the rich concentrations of minerals in, uh, in the Dead Sea. Uh, the Dead Sea itself is about 1300 feet below sea level. I want to talk about the lake of fire when we return. So I hope you will continue this discussion with me. Satan and the false prophet and the beast are thrown in the lake of fire and it is said they'll be tormented day and night forever. What does that all mean? Again, we are developing 
with greater insight, revelation, and discussion, themes that have been presented in a very shallow and unsubstantial way for the longest while. So we'll understand with greater clarity what this is because Scripture is clearly using an analogy to fire coming down out of heaven to the time in Scripture where Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone or sulphur. And that analogy holds keys of understanding to what then the lake of fire may be. Come back for a discussion on the lake of fire. I'll see you then. I'm Sam Solon and I'll talk to you then. Bye now.